Welcome to Helix Talk, an educational podcast for healthcare students and providers covering real-life clinical pearls, professional pharmacy topics, and drug therapy discussions. This podcast is provided by pharmacists and faculty members at Rosalind Franklin University College of Pharmacy. This podcast contains general information for educational purposes only. This is not professional advice and should not be used in lieu of obtaining advice from a qualified healthcare provider. And now, on to the show. Welcome to Helux Talk, episode 100. I'm your co-host, Dr. Kane. I'm Dr. Patel. And with us today, we have a very special guest, Dean Mark Abel, Dean of College of Pharmacy at Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Abel. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation with you. So, Dr. Abel, we asked you to come on to the episode because today's episode is a very special episode for us. It's episode 100 of Helix Talk, and we wanted to kick off the episode by first thanking the audience. We've received lots of emails, iTunes reviews, comments, things like that that have really motivated us to continue this podcast through 100 episodes and more. So we really appreciate the audience support. And we thought that it would only be fitting to have the dean of our college come for the 100th episode to really talk about the profession of pharmacy and pharmacy education. So the title of today's episode, episode 100, is Evolution or Revolution, the Future of Pharmacy and Pharmacy Education. May I just add that I'm very proud of Dr. Kane, Dr. Patel, and also Dr. Schumann, who has been a part of this podcast for a long time, and I'm uh, pleased that we're able to produce this. Absolutely. Well, let's kick it off by talking about some numbers. In terms of pharmacy education, if you look over the past five years, so we're looking at 2013 versus 2018, the most recent data, what does it look like in terms of the applicant pool to pharmacy schools? In that time period, we've gone from 124 pharmacy schools all the way up to 142 pharmacy schools. There's 18 new ones. We've had an 11% increase in the number of graduates, and yet we've had a 32% decline in the number of applicants to pharmacy schools. So basically, we have more pharmacy schools, a slight increase in the number of graduates, and a pretty big decrease in the applicant pool of people who are applying to pharmacy schools. So in terms of that context, you know, what are some of the drivers to that and how does that impact how pharmacy schools are approaching pharmacy education? I think students and individuals considering a career in healthcare have lots of options now uh, is, is part of the issue. They're looking at other healthcare professions and I think that perhaps they don't know enough about what pharmacy really can provide. Pharmacy is a fantastic career with lots of options and lots of career opportunities but I'm not sure that that message is really getting through to high school students and even younger students, let alone undergraduates who are considering healthcare professions. So if we look at the data that you provided, Dr. Kane, are we then looking at some long-term or short-term pharmacist shortage in the future since we don't have that many applicants applying to new pharmacy schools? Yeah, that's a great question and probably a question that no one really truly knows the answer to as the healthcare system may be evolving at some point in the future. You know, when I was applying to pharmacy school, there was a huge shortage of pharmacists where many pharmacies were offering very large sign-on bonuses just to sign on for a couple years at a given pharmacy. And that has basically gone away at this point where we don't have a pharmacist shortage anymore. So the climate has changed. People are less interested in applying to pharmacy school, which means that as we have fewer graduates, maybe we'll have this pendulum effect where we go back to a shortage at some point in the future just because of the applicant pool and the number of graduates that we're having right now. It's really hard to say. 
Historically, we've seen that sort of cyclical nature for healthcare professions in general. Um, at various times, PT, medicine, others um, have, have had a large number of applicants. And then in response to that, there aren't enough jobs. And so there's a shortage of, of applicants. And so I think that's maybe what's happening in pharmacy. That may be one of the drivers for this. And it seems like it's like the law of economy, right? You have that supply and demand, you have that surge and decline. And so perhaps this is what we are seeing in pharmacy as well. Mm -hmm. In addition, I think the reason that so many schools have opened is in response to the shortage that you were talking about a moment ago, Dr. Kane. And now we're seeing the other side of the pendulum as it swings. And I would also add to this, um, and we've spoken with Dean Winicky about this in terms of job satisfaction and careers after graduation and things like that. You know, there are a lot of community pharmacists who are less happy than they thought they would be in their jobs. And part of that deals with the nature of the work, lack of breaks, being on their feet a lot, not doing what they thought that they would be doing when they're in school, things like that. So I think that the messaging from those potentially a minority but outspoken pharmacists may be also hindering the profession and saying, I'm not happy with my job. And that is also getting out as well. I think that's a very good point. And to that point, those same pharmacists came into the profession typically when things were different. And now that the job requirements are changing and the regulations are changing and the uh, overall satisfaction is changing of, of patients even, those pharmacists are feeling that they're not as happy and secure in their positions. And we can you know, ponder here and, and just talk about what's affecting. But lately, if you think, think about the research that's out about the pharmacist image in social media or like how it's portrayed in movie industry or on television and it's sort of negative imaging uh, if you think about it so when when the message goes out to future pool of applicants that oh this is what pharmacists do it's not quite appealing so that that's hurting us as well that's right And, and the aacp has been addressing that with two elements in the strategic plan actually the first is to increase the number of applicants and the second is to increase the positive image of pharmacists by the general community. And to the second point, a large number of dollars have gone toward a media campaign called Pharmacists for Healthier Lives, which you might want to look into. There are a lot of resources there. There are ads, there are social media efforts. And I think that this situation that Dr. Patel just described isn't going unrecognized and steps are being taken to to try to rectify the situation. And we'll see how that goes. And pharmacy education just doesn't stop there. Uh, It then grows to acquiring postgraduate training, such as PGY-1, PGY-2 fellowships. So what have the trends been in the last five years when it comes to advanced training like these? Yeah, so if you look at the numbers in terms of PGY-1 and PGY-2, for PGY-1s, we've seen a 34% increase in the number of positions that are available. We've seen a 41% increase in the number of applicants applying to the match process. And roughly the match rate has been the same. So typically about two-thirds of applicants will match to a PGY-1 program, and that's been fairly consistent over the past five years. In terms of PGY-2, we've seen a huge increase in PGY-2s, a 71% increase. Um, And we've also seen a comparable 78% increase in the number of applicants applying to a PGY-2 program. So to summarize, we have had a very large growth in PGY-1 and PGY-2, both programs, positions, and applicants. 
and more graduates are actually pursuing these efforts. If you look at the percent of graduates over the last five years that applied to a PGY-1 as an example, it was about 30%, now it's 37%, and a similar increase of about 4% of PharmD graduates five years ago pursued PGY-2, now it's about 6% of PharmD graduates have pursued a PGY-2. So these are growing fields, not narrowing fields. Many graduates are pursuing this as a career opportunity after graduation. And if you can think about some of the reasons why we have seen such an influx in applications and interest in pursuing residencies, some of them could be that we talked about earlier, the job satisfaction. If you enter in an entry-level position, it's not as great as opposed to if you were to receive some advanced training and then enter into those clinical positions thereafter. I think part of this too is mentorship. So many of the faculty who students are exposed to are residency trained faculty, often who have clinical positions, especially later on in the curriculum. And if you're a student and you have a role model faculty member, you're probably going to pursue a similar career path to what your role model or mentor has done. So I think it's reasonable that that is also something that is a driving force here. Another factor in this, I think, is the uh, relationship between the students and the community pharmacies where, uh, as you pointed out a few minutes ago, the satisfaction isn't great. I'm not sure that that's so true in the hospital systems. And so our students are being trained in clinical pharmacy. They're not just being trained to deliver prescriptions. And I think the opportunity for that clinical interaction with patients is much greater in a hospital system. And so I think students are seeing that opportunity and they're being trained for it. So they're going to look for opportunities to have a position that allows them to do those things that they're trained for. And on the flip side, thinking about more residency spots, I believe the institutions are realizing the worth of having clinical pharmacists on board, having um, the resident trainees on board, and how much they can contribute towards the improvement of patient outcomes and the services they provide in the institution itself. So I think we're seeing increased spots for residencies because of these factors too. Absolutely. There, there is a, a wealth of data now showing that when a pharmacist is involved in patient care in the hospital, the outcomes are much better. The uh, return rate to hospitals is much lower, and therefore the hospitals are happier because uh, they're doing their job better and their reimbursements are better. And let's not forget as well that on the student side, if a student is interested in clinical or hospital pharmacy, it does depend on geography a bit, but for the most part, especially in a a more urban area, you have to have a residency in order to be competitive in the market to get a job at a hospital, for example. At at the same time, there's an increasing number of community residencies. Mm -hmm. Um, So some pharmacies are starting to recognize the value of that additional training in the community as well. I mean, going back, what, seven years now, if I think about why I went and and did the residency to be competitive, you know, in the market for sure for the job, but also for the fact that as a fourth year student, I just didn't feel like I was ready to practice and have that, you know, decision making and burden on my license. And I thought that I needed that additional year of training to gain that additional experience, the confidence in making those clinical those more sort of gray decisions that, you know, nowadays all clinical pharmacists are faced with. So. And Dr. Patel, I truly view that as the niche role of the pharmacist in any healthcare setting is this is really complicated stuff that we do, right? So it's not as simple as you look up a dose and that's the dose. You know, we're trained on pharmacokinetics, we're trained on genomics, we're trained on disease states and interactions with different drugs and those disease states and things like that. If this was simple, 
we wouldn't have a job, right? So we have a job because this is a complex arena and we are the medication experts in that arena of this interprofessional team, right? So in order to be the best person on that team, oftentimes you do need more than what a PharmD can provide in order to practice at the level that you need to practice at for some of these jobs. And we are thankful for a certain organization taking the leadership in, you know, crediting these residency programs, establishing the standards. So even the graduates of these advanced programs come up with the caliber where they can serve the patients at the standard that we are hoping that they serve. So switching gears a little bit, we can look at training, we can look at the applicant pool. What about jobs? Everyone's concerned about do we have too many pharmacy schools? Do we have too many pharmacists? Are they they're just not going to be a job for these graduates in the future? And the best place to look for statistics about that is the National Bureau of Labor and Statistics. This is a really cool website where for any profession, it will tell you how many workers are in that profession, whether they expect it to be expanding or contracting. You can go all the way down to the geography and look at specific markets to see what that labor market looks like for a given profession. So if we look at that, the National Bureau of Labor and Statistics, and I quote, said employment of pharmacists is projected to grow 6% from 2016 to 2026, so a 10-year period. And that's roughly about as fast as average for all occupations. So pharmacy is not contracting at all. It's growing at the rate of other jobs nationally. So there's nothing special about it, but it's also not a contracting field either. That's great to know. And if you look at some of the past performance, so like going back from 2012 to 2016, we have looked at 9% increase in pharmacists in the workforce. So that says that this is a growing trend. In addition to that, they also provide geographic-based numbers to give you a sense of, you know, is the job market in Illinois or Wisconsin different than national trends? And if you look at Illinois and Wisconsin, they have a location quotient less than one, basically meaning that the density of pharmacists to the population in that state is less than the national average. In Illinois, it's uh, 0.96, so we're roughly about national average. And in Wisconsin, it's 0.88, meaning that it's 12% lower than the national average average in terms of the number of pharmacists per capita, if you will, in that state, indicating that we are not a saturated market in these two states compared to the national average pharmacist per person in that state. I think it's important to point out, too, that there's a an intrastate element to this as well, so that the areas of, of denser population, particularly in those states that have a, a large number of pharmacy schools, in the, in the urban settings, the competition for those jobs is much greater, but the jobs are available in the rural areas, suburban areas, and, and others. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and the quotient like this that you mentioned, Dr. Kane and Dr. Abel, is it's probably the deciding factor on varying salaries that the, the institutions offer, uh, depending on the geographic location, as well as the demand for these positions. I just want to go back. When I was a P1 student working in a retail environment as an intern, the market was completely different than it is now. And I think for people roughly my age that maybe are dissatisfied with the job market, we were used to sign-on bonuses, multiple job offers before you even graduate. And at this point, it's gone back to normal. This is a normal job market. This is not a hot job market anymore. And to have what we used to have as perspective, I think, makes it harder to appreciate where we're at now. As I said before, this is a cyclical issue, in my opinion, and it's been shown historically to be cyclical. And I think there are factors that are coming into play that will move the pendulum to the other side and the job market will get better. One of those is that older pharmacists will be retiring in larger numbers coming up in the near future. Secondly, 
provider status will hopefully allow the retailers to get reimbursed for the efforts of the pharmacist, and therefore they will want to have more pharmacists on staff and allow the pharmacist to do more of the things that they're trained to do, which relates to my earlier point, that that would increase job satisfaction, and therefore there would be more of an attraction by incoming pharmacists who want to get into the field. So I think that there's there's a, a, a number of things that can come together that will will move the job market into in a positive way. Yeah, and as we look at even the trends in job market are changing. They even the community pharmacies are now requiring that pharmacists spend more face-to-face time with patients doing clinical activities. And we talked about how there is more community residency programs developed uh, as a result of that too. So talking about and focusing on clinical practice of pharmacy, wh- how how is that changing? Let's let's take a look at that a little bit too. And I, I really view this as one of the most important talking points of what is the value of a pharmacist, especially in my neck of the woods in the inpatient hospital arena, just because that's the area that I touch the most. I view that inpatient hospital pharmacist as someone who can save the hospital money, improve efficacy where our drugs work better, and improve safety where we have fewer medication errors and fewer adverse effects of our medications as a direct result of the pharmacist being involved in that setting. Yeah, and if you kind of translate that on the outpatient arena or ambulatory care arena where I work, I think the value of pharmacists is proving just what you just described, Dr. Kane, but in addition, provide patient education, provide services such as transitions of care, as Dr. Abel mentioned. With these services, patients will be less apt to returning to the hospital, would save hospitals some money on the reimbursement for readmissions as well. In addition to that, pharmacists provide uh, education to providers to to improve safe medication prescribing, such as outpatient antimicrobial stewardship to curb the resistant problem that we're seeing with antibiotics in, in community recently, too. That's one example, say. Mm-hmm. And to that point, in terms of interprofessional education, the, the other healthcare providers are starting to realize the value of the pharmacists. And it begins with interprofessional education. And we can talk about that in a minute as well. But even in the, the current situation, um, I'm hearing a number of reports from pharmacists that they've been called in to consult with physicians and sort of um, offer the, the expertise that Dr. Kane mentioned earlier, that the physicians are starting to realize that the pharmacist is the medication expert. I'm fond of saying that, that the other healthcare professions either prescribe medication or administer medication or monitor medication, but they don't really have the training in medication. And so the pharmacist is the expert. The pharmacist is the person who can bring all of that together for them and give them that, that sense of, of security with regard to medication. And if I may indulge our audience with one, one recent example that occurred, we got a patient to monitor for anticoagulation at our clinic. Patient's been on warfarin, knows ins and out of warfarin therapy. We do the first visit consult with the patient, and the patient at the end of the visit tells me that, She's been on warfarin. She's been monitored by multiple different providers. This is the first time somebody has gone in-depth and asked so many questions, retrieved so much information, and provided education that knowing warfarin and being on warfarin for so long, that some of the things that she didn't know, that mm-hmm. she should have known until now. So that's a testimonial as to how pharmacists are the medication expert and can provide these services at much more granular and detailed level um, that can improve patient outcomes. And if you just put yourself in in the shoes of these other healthcare providers for a second, think about their perspective in terms of, let's say they 
graduated 10 years ago. How many new medications are, are on the market? It's hard for me as a drug expert pharmacist to keep up with even non-oncology-based drugs that are new. And in the oncology realm, there it's an explosion of new drugs and new therapies and things to know about them. Just keeping up on that, um, the high drug costs, so appreciating not just efficacy and safety, but cost, insurance coverage, things like that. That's a huge deal for patients and for the entire insurance realm in terms of having money to afford our healthcare. On top of that, identifying what is the most effective therapy, what is the most effective way to do something, that's a whole different tier as opposed to just these are drugs for hypertension, but what is the best one? What is the best way to monitor it? What's the best one for that particular patient? I I really view this as kind of an iceberg phenomenon where you graduate, you kind of see the tip of the iceberg, and then as you go into practice, you kind of see how deep it goes. And that depth is really where pharmacists shine in terms of not just knowing the surface level, but everything underneath. And that's a huge area that uh, I think pharmacists play a role in. And the impact on patient care is huge. And that's the message that we need to get out, I believe, to those people that are thinking about a career in healthcare who want to help people. We hear that so often. The typical thing is they think about a physician or a nurse or a PA. But if we can get the message out that pharmacists really help people greatly, then uh, we may have uh, uh, changed the perception a little bit. And so I think that's a message that we need to pursue. Yeah, and then you know, talking about working in a professionally, collaborating with the physicians to improve medication or therapy-related outcomes. Nowadays, we have those facilitation, whether they come in form of collaborative practice agreement, that's where I practice in Wisconsin follows, or certain other states follow something called standing orders. And these agreements and orders per se are helpful in both ambulatory care, clinic-based practice, as well as community practice where pharmacists have the opportunity to collaborate They have the opportunity to talk to the patient face-to-face, to to improve and monitor those clinical outcomes and and work together um, to make a difference when it comes to medication therapy. I explored that a little bit before we got together to talk today, and I found out that there are 109 provider status bills currently in 34 states in the 2019 season. So this is a burgeoning effort. I believe it's going to come on strong and ultimately will we'll do very well for the profession. Um, in addition, H.R. 592 had 296 co-sponsors in the House of Representatives. Um, it hasn't been brought forward, but once that bill is brought forward, the provider status may take hold nationally in addition to the state efforts. Which is really good news for pharmacists and the opportunities that we are seeking. And when it comes to reimbursement for the services that we are providing, having this provider status is very vital. Exactly. It means if you're a provider, it means that the pharmacist can can participate in Part B of Medicare and be reimbursed. And I think that's so important if you think about it, because right now the way that a hospital views the transaction of having a pharmacist is they pay a salary and really the the monetary benefit comes down the road right it isn't an immediate billable thing it's a the pharmacist is a formulary enforcer to make sure that we're um, using medications um, appropriately and from a cost effective standpoint or preventing litigation so medication errors causing multi-million dollar lawsuits you don't have to have that many multi-million dollar lawsuits prevented before you've really paid for that pharmacist salary in full but again the problem here is that this is a long play and an administrator has to appreciate that long play as opposed to being able to bill that day for the service that you provided that day Um, i think that that is a game changer 
Yeah, and I think I believe Dr. Kane, you're alluding to the cost-saving model that a lot of the institutions are looking at when it comes to justifying a pharmacist's salary. But we're hoping that with the provider status, there will be some direct billing involved that would result into direct monetary benefit. Ultimately, I think if that comes to pass um, and the system changes in the ways that we're describing here, the perception of pharmacists will also change because they'll be more out front. Uh, they'll be able to do the things that they're trained to do, and they'll be recognized for those efforts. And, and because it's a value to the employers in general, they're going to want to expand the pharmacist's presence in their patient care efforts. Mm-hmm. Dr. Abel, one of the reasons uh, that we wanted you to come here was to actually talk about the pharmacy school aspect, uh, not just kind of where the profession is going, but how we're preparing future students to become graduates and then be engaged in whatever pharmacy holds in the future. So how are pharmacy schools evolving nationally to respond to how the practice model is changing? Well, there are a number of things in play. The first thing to look at is the standards that the ACPE puts in place for colleges and schools of pharmacy. The Accreditation Council for Pharmacy Education puts out standards that all schools must abide by. New schools need to work toward those standards uh, in a sequential way over over a period of years. And those standards have changed. The most recent set of standards was put in place in 2016. And in those standards, we talk about practice-ready and team-ready graduates. And so the idea there is that our students need to be ready to practice, even though it's just the tip of the iceberg in some cases, and they need to be team-ready. So the interprofessional element of the education is something that's really coming on strong. And there's a lot of discussion amongst deans with the ACPE and AACP as well about how to do that in the best possible way, what the requirement is, and and how to uh, meet that requirement. And so in many schools, it's, it's relatively easy because the schools have other healthcare training programs either in their own institution or nearby, and they're able to interact with those educators and the students from the other programs. For some schools, it's a lot more difficult because let's say they're they're isolated. It's a pharmacy school. Maybe there's another school, maybe nursing with them, but there's no medical school or PA or PT or some of the other professions. And so it's harder for them to meet the standard, but technology is coming into play and those schools are finding ways to do that. But back to your point about the education, the clinical education is is becoming more and more important. And the earlier that schools can provide some clinical exposure, uh, the better for the training of the students. And many schools are beginning to, to move the clinical experiential component earlier in the program. So ultimately what we want to do is, is have a student graduate with a basis of knowledge and a wealth of experience so that they can move into any arena within pharmacy that they're interested in pursuing. And I will say, you know, part of that direct patient care, when I was a student, our IPI hours, our introductory pharmacy practice experience hours, were completely different than what it is now. There's no way that as a, a P1 or a P2 student, I would have ever been able to step foot in an intensive care unit, be able to see what a critical care pharmacist look like. 
my IPI hours were done at a retail pharmacy, all of them. And uh, a year or two after I had done my IPI hours, the model changed and I love it now because it gives these students an opportunity to see what it's like to be in these other roles, direct patient care roles, working on that interprofessional team. And I really think that those two things have really driven how pharmacy education has evolved over time. And you know, earlier we were talking about the different types of positions that pharmacists can can uh, apply to and, and, and obtain. I think the experiential component of the education speaks to that as well because there are opportunities now for students, in addition to doing the clinical and the community type of, of experiences, can also do an academic rotation. Um, so they might see what the academic life is like and they may want to pursue that. They can have an experience in industry and so they can see what industry is like on the inside. And so there are other opportunities for awareness about job opportunities as well as just clinical training. Yeah, and I think marrying both the didactic component and the experiential component and producing these uh, optimally trained pharmacy students is the key to enhance healthcare in future. And I will say, you know, it's great that we can look at where pharmacy education is right now in terms of where the standards are driving us to go. Of course, as we have a new P1 student, we have to not just think about what are we doing now, but where do we need to be when they graduate? And four years after they graduate, how do we give them the toolkit to be successful in whatever the healthcare arena looks like in 5, 10, 15, 20 plus years? That's a really difficult task to have. So um, what are some areas that you guys think are growth opportunities for pharmacy students that hopefully pharmacy schools are starting to embrace and at least integrate into curricula and experiences so that students can be successful down the road? Well, first of all, can I just comment on, on what you just said about how pharmacy and the profession, the healthcare system, and the world will be different when a student graduates as compared to when they first come in, as well as 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road. You know, we really can't predict what it will look like at that time. So I think what we have to do fundamentally is give students the tools to appreciate that things will change and give them the tools to learn how to adapt to change so that they recognize that they are going to have to change and that things will, will be different down the road for them as, as they move through their career. And so some schools, including ours, have a course in lifelong learning where we ask students from the very beginning to attend lectures and to think about additional things beyond the didactic curriculum as a way to expose them to staying current and, and staying um, interested and involved in trends for pharmacy and uh, research and clinical practice as well. So that's one way that we're starting to approach it. And I think this kind of adds that um, not a passive learning approach, but more of an active and independent learning approach that, you know, if there's a topic of their interest, they can seek that topic out, they can seek that seminar or presentation out, and they can attend it, learn about it, write about it, and then perhaps pursue further opportunities in, in the similar areas. One of the things that will definitely change in the future is the onset of more pharmacogenomics. And it's important for our students to understand what that means, how it's used, how to interpret data. And so I'm certain that schools, uh, again, us included, are offering courses and requiring courses in pharmacogenomics so that students are aware of this burgeoning field and uh, will be able to be involved in it as it grows. 
And I would add to that, another area that I think is a huge growth opportunity for pharmacy is the integration of information technology or informatics with pharmacy. Looking at big data, looking at um, the ability to analyze big data and make it meaningful, where this includes everything from a big database of patient metrics all the way to genomics, where you're using informatics plus genomics to make decisions about a patient care using many, many different data points for that individual patient. So, you know, many pharmacy schools are considering certificate programs, even master's programs in genomics or informatics. And I think that that is a huge growth opportunity for pharmacy too. And what you just said, Dr. Kane, kind of marries into something called um, population health. And that's where the running the reports and, and using the existing data and then looking at where are these big holes? Where, where can the pharmacists come in and, and fill these holes and improve the patient care? And that's where pharmacists are placed into clinics called population health clinics, and they're targeting specific deficits in healthcare and medication therapy and improving those um, particular outcomes. Dr. Kane, you're correct in that schools are offering those training programs in pharmacogenomics and in big data, uh, the analysis of big data. Um, Not all schools have the capability of doing that themselves. Their faculty may not be expert in that. But a number of schools are partnering with local colleges and universities that do have programs in big data analysis. And so they're developing sort of combined programs which is another good thing, I think. I think it's important for pharmacy students to, be, to expand into other areas and to interact potentially with faculty and students from other institutions. It broadens their horizons and gives them new perspectives. Another aspect of students' training and opportunity is in the area of research. And a number of students uh, want to pursue research in various ways, whether it be bench science or clinical research or population health research, as Dr. Patel mentioned, or even social determinants of health and a number of other things. And so whenever possible, schools are offering students the opportunity to conduct research with faculty uh, within the colleges and, and sometimes outside of the college so that they can get that experience. And sometimes it takes hold, uh, sometimes it doesn't, but it's a good thing to eliminate uh, opportunities as well because then you can focus on the things that are more important to you. Well, to kind of wrap up today, some key points that I got out of what we talked about. Number one is that we we definitely do have a, a change in supply and demand within pharmacy education. We have more schools, fewer applicants, and a reasonable steady trend upwards of the number of graduates from pharmacy schools that I think is consistent with the job market and makes sense of where we're at right now. And if you look at the the advanced training programs such as the PGY1 and PGY2, the spots for these advanced training programs are also increasing and the number of graduates applying to these programs are um, also increasing. And schools are beginning to focus more on these emerging fields in, in pharmacy, such as pharmacogenomics and informatics. It's, it's important to maintain an awareness of those things and those topics are being integrated into the curriculum. They're being offered as dual degrees or certificate programs in some places. And it's, uh, it's what the future holds for pharmacy, I think. And if you look at that translation on the, uh, the real clinical practice side, we know that the, the clinical pharmacist role continues to expand. These pharmacists are part of you know, interprofessional teams. We're reducing costs. We're improving other drug outcomes, such as making the drug therapy more effective and safe. Wonderful. Well, Dr. Abel, I wanted to thank you again for your time. I want to thank the audience for their continued support of the show. And if you want to see show notes from today or any other episode, we're available at helixtalk.com. We're also on Twitter at helixtalk. 
Um, and we love the five-star reviews. It keeps us going. So with that, I'm Dr. Kane. I'm Dr. Patel. I'm Dr. Abel, and I'd like to say thanks again for having me in this uh, episode. I appreciate it. And for those who are interested, we've created a video with an original song that talks about how wonderful the profession of pharmacy is. If you'd like to see it and share it with us, everybody you know, you can visit it at the following URL, rfu.ms slash the hyphen right hyphen thing. And we'll have a link on our show notes as well for anyone who has trouble getting to it. But the video is amazing, and I definitely encourage everyone to check it out and share it because I think it's a great representation of the profession of pharmacy. Thank you, Dr. Abel, for being here. And um, to our listeners, as usual, listen hard. If you enjoyed the show, please help us climb the iTunes rankings for medical podcasts by giving us a five-star review in the iTunes store. Search for Helix Talk and place your review there. To suggest an episode or contact us, we're online at helixtalk.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Helix Talk. This is an educational production, copyright Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science.